welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PR and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the trial of the week. I review a landmark trial that was published this month in medical history. And my special guest today is Scott Benkin. And we start the episode off actually with a discussion on the upcoming C4 conference, correct? That's the Chicagoland Critical Care Conference. So be sure to listen, get more info. It's a fantastic local conference available both in person, virtual. It's awesome. Um, and then as always for the trial of the week, right, we kind of go in three parts. So we set the scene, give the background into treatment at the time that study was published. We talk about the trial of the week, right? What is the article that we're featuring today? What did they find? Who did they include, et cetera? And then where are we now? How do we treat this disease state now? How did this research study or article affect our care? And if you're wondering how I was able to compare the Taylor Swift eras tour to our sepsis care in the early 2000s. Stay tuned, because the answer to that and much, much more begins right now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouthwatering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And with me now for our trial of the week this week for August is none other than Scott Benkin. Now, Scott is the medical ICU clinical pharmacist at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System and a clinical associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Pharmacy. So, Scott, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for the opportunity to be here. I'm thrilled to be back. Yeah, recurring guest. I appreciate you coming back. I'm glad that um, bridges weren't burned when you came last time. And I got to say, before we get into this awesome trial of the week, let's talk about the Chicagoland Critical Care Conference or uh, the C4 conference to to save some characters. In, In my opinion, one of the best regional conferences Longtime listeners know, Scott, you when you were on previously, um, you were talking a little bit about this conference. Back again, Saturday, August 26th. So let the listeners know what to expect. What What is the C4 conference? Yeah, so, um, you know, I appreciate the, the positive comments there. C4 conference, it, you know, it, it started in a uh, conference room in an ICU uh, with some colleagues that wanted to talk about kind of the cutting edge of critical care, what, what things are new, what's coming next, what's the kind of new strategies, what are, how can we expand, how can we research, um, 
And really now we're, it's kind of funny to say this, can't believe it. So this is our eighth year uh, of offering wow. this conference. Um, it is now multidisciplinary. So we're targeting nursing, nurse practitioners, uh, physicians, pharmacists. Uh, we got a great agenda. Um, we have uh, experts from all different types of uh, fields, but we're, you know, we're going to be talking about beta-lactam PK and optimizing that. Uh, we have Impella, ECMO. We're going to be talking about reversal agents uh, using thrombolytics for PE. I mean, if you if you name it, um, we we got it. And that's just the adult side. We also have a um, pediatric critical care, uh, um, you know, track as well. And so, you know, the, you can expect the same type of really robust, cutting edge topics in that too. And I mean, you're probably listening to this like, wow, what a, what an amazing conference. This is probably like four, five, six hundred dollars $600. No, like that's not, it is $75 to register, which is amazing. And when you look at the, at the speakers and the agenda, I mean, friends of the pod, you got Megan Reck, Morgan Jones, Patrick Vyarushevsky, and then it's, it's a who's who of others as well speaking. And so, I mean, it, if you can attend, this is definitely one to attend see this what a what an awesome story that this literally started in a conference room and it grew to what this is now what a testament to to you and the and the planning committee with this because wow what awesome work yeah well thank you for that and i mean in like the one of the coolest things i think you know not that the pandemic led to a lot of really positive things but we now are offering this whole thing electronically as well so if there are folks that can't come from all over the country you can still register you can get that access uh afterwards uh, you know watch the uh the sessions at your you know your own convenience and leisure and get your ce credit through that way as well yep so there, there'll be a link to register in the episode description as well as the website and the reference list so just fyi the deadline is monday august 21st listeners so be sure to register i'm attending as well I'll be there in person so if you want to say hey come do that c4 so awesome scott I, I love the chance to highlight that because um when I think these like local conferences being able to connect with people that are close to you, but then also the option of virtual, it's kind of the best of both worlds. So really, really looking forward to that. So the reason we are here today, the cats study. So let's set the scene here, right? So, um, Taylor Swift has the Eras tour happening right now. Big talk in my household is I got waitlisted for the the new on sale, but she's highlighting her different eras, right? And this trial actually takes place during I think we call it the early gold directed therapy era in sepsis, right? So how were inotropes used in septic shock in those early 2000s? Uh, set the stage for those who who may and not be less familiar may not have been practicing at that time. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, well, obviously big shout out to Taylor Swift. So we, we live in the Soldier Field air, uh, area of Chicago. And so we were, um, you know, we kind of felt like we were part of the Taylor Swift experience. We didn't go to the concert. You know, we have one mortgage and that was enough for us. Um, but we, uh, you know, got to see three nights of it in Chicago and uh, it was something else to take in. So, uh, you know, when we think about this time of, of practice, right, so the enrollment for patients in this study was like 1999 to 2004. Yep. So, you know, in 2001, we got early goal-directed therapy. Um, later in 2001, we had our activated protein C, Zygris, uh, made its way onto the, onto the market. We were targeting intensive insulin therapy in our folks. So we're looking at you know, serum glucoses of 90 to 110. So practice was different then. 
Um, I always, you know, use the the comparison. Like when I was was graduating pharmacy school, I was, you know, looking at paper charts, following Swan Gans catheter numbers. Um, and, and now the era is is quite different. Um, so back then, you know, the the recommendation for hemodynamic management, um, believe it or not, the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, the, they were being written during this period of time. So we didn't actually have one until 2004. And so the guidance out there was it's a little bit of the Wild West. So people were doing uh, dopamine as a first-line agent. That was very reasonable at the time. Uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, there was a lot of debate, a lot of folklore about what different vasopressors had different adverse events. Um, but I think there were some commonalities in that you know, there, there's an idea of we need to increase the blood pressure and patients might need inotropy. And I think that's kind of something that bridges the, the era of practicing then, which is something we, we still see now. Well, can you imagine if you back to the future and you like went to a rounding, like you were rounding 20 years ago and you were looking at all those therapies, it'd probably be a pretty wild experience. And we'll, and we'll get to what stood out to, to us as some of the most weird things in today's era, but you, you mentioned those vasopressors and yeah, there was a lot more of dopamine discussion that I ever like to see in any studies. So this article published in Lancet in 2007. So did we really have much guidance at all regarding like our ideal vasopressors or things for hemodynamic management? Or was it kind of like you said, all we knew was we got to get the blood pressure up. We just maybe didn't know how. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's essentially where we were at, you know, the initial surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, which just cracks me up. So the initial PDF was 16 pages. You fast forward to our one uh, that was just released in 2021, it's 81 pages. So obviously there's, there's something that's changed over time. Um, and one of the things, I think there's just more granularity in terms of what we should do, and maybe even more importantly, what we shouldn't do. Um, you know, because the Rivers study in 2001 with early goal-directed therapy was so pivotal, um, a lot of what you see in the guidelines really reflected that. Um, and so there was, you know, this emphasis of, you know, some fluid resuscitation up front. Um, they were very specific about targeting a CVP uh, goal, which we may or may not do now. Um, and then moving on to, you know, targeting a mean arterial pressure and getting that pressure above 65 and sustaining that. And if the blood pressure was high, but there were still signs of poor perfusion uh, or you had signs of uh, a low cardiac output and you know, kind of multiple different ways of, of finding that information. The recommendation was very quickly to, to jump to an inotrope. So remind us, we're going to be talking a lot about our catecholamine vasopressors. And let us, so the study is looking at norepinephrine and dobutamine kind of compared to, to epinephrine. So thinking about like our like catecholamine, like receptor physiology and things, let us know like what's happening with with that combination of our receptors compared to what's happening when we just give someone epinephrine? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's very interesting because when you read um, articles from this era, uh, you hear the, the propensity for norepinephrine to be labeled as a pure alpha vasoconstrictor, which I, I, I think, you know, obviously there's, there's probably some um, truth in that statement that it does provide potent alpha one vasoconstriction. Um, but it also has some beta-1 activity, and we do see this as, you know, comes through and increases in heart rate and some inotropy. Um, the rationale for coupling that, though, with dobutamine 
is that dobutamine, because of its very potent beta-1 activity and a little bit of offset of beta-2 and alpha-1, is that you really get a primary inotropic and chronotropic response. And so using norepinephrine in conjunction with dobutamine could fulfill both the vasoconstrictive potential, but then also give you some, you know, some kick for the heart, some increase in your heart rate, some increase in your inotropy. Now, if you compare that to epinephrine, I would say they're actually not too different. Um, epinephrine, you know, has very potent um, beta-1, but then also alpha-1 vasoconstriction. Um, and then it has a little bit of beta-2, especially at lower doses. And so you get some offset of its um, vasoconstriction when, when you're at low dose. But as soon as you start pushing those doses, uh, you really start transforming epinephrine into a very similar receptor pattern to that of norepi plus dobutamine. And so as we get into the study, physiologically, right, that makes sense that these two things could give you comparative results. So as we as we set the stage for it, right, physiologically, this this is a, a even playing field as we talk about our two kind of treatment arms here. So the study today, right, our trial of the week, norepinephrine plus dobutamine versus epinephrine alone for the management of septic shock, a randomized trial. So this is the CAT study, which is... Hitting top 10 of favorite favorite study names for me. Um, published in Lancet, August 2007. So French prospective multi-center randomized double-blind study led by the famous Dr. Anand, who you'll see on all the steroid papers in septic shock. As an aside, I emailed him for a copy of one of his PDF, uh, papers that I didn't have access to, responded in less than 12 hours. So nice guy. Thank you so much, Dr. <laughs> Anand. Um, so adult ICU patients, they were included if they had two, so th this is a, there was a lot of check boxes that they had to do for patients to get included. So shout out to the research personnel. So they had to have two out of four of our classic SERS criteria. They had to have at least two signs of tissue hypoperfusion or organ dysfunction and have all three of the following. So you had to have a systolic less than 90 or a MAP less than 70. You had to have gotten at least a liter of IV fluid and you needed at least, right, that, um, I know, or the uh, squeezer dose of dopamine, at least 15 mics per kilo per minute of dopamine or any other vasopressor, epinephrine or norepinephrine. Um, a couple key exclusion criteria, obstructive cardiomyopathy, acute MI or acute PE, along with the others of, you know, you'd, uh, the thought would be you would have a poor outcome and things like that. So they ultimately enrolled 330 patients with a primary outcome of 28-day all-cause mortality and a primary safety outcome just looking at those serious adverse events secondary to the catecholamine infusions. So Scott, add anything that I may have missed in our methodology and let us know what that CATS research team ultimately, ultimately found with this study. Yeah, for, I mean, methodologically, I don't think there was too much in there other than, you know, you know, kind of thinking of what they were expecting to see. Um, you know, there was uh, an expected mortality rate of 60% uh, across the cohort. And in patients that received epinephrine, there is an anticipated reduction of that down to 40%. So that's a large, just absolute risk reduction. And we can kind of probably get into that later when we start talking about the results. But um, realistically, what they didn't find was any differences in any of those mortality variables uh, across the cohort. And it was sliced in multiple different ways, controlled for severity of illness. And there really just wasn't any signals that mortality was influenced um, by the choice of vasopressor regimen. Um, you know, 
hindsight's always twenty twenty, and so here in twenty twenty three, you know, looking back, uh, I, I'm not sure that that's terribly surprising that there wasn't a mortality benefit with the choice of vasopressors. Um, we, I think, we kind of now have a little bit of sense of you know what is really rooting our decision. Oftentimes, is adverse events, and I think like that was something that the CATS research team found uh, and and started to highlight as they were talking about uh, the results of their study. Yeah, the idea now that um, your vasopressor selection could, you know, have a bring down a relative risk reduction of a third is kind of right. Hindsight is now 2023. That was very well said, Scott. Um, So, yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because they planned their sample size with an expected 28 day mortality rate of 60 percent. So obviously, we know that's very high for us now in modern days. But was that the sepsis mortality rate at that time? Like, how did they come up with that number? Yeah, so it actually was derived from a previous study that this same research team did. Um, and so that was an observed mortality at the time. Now, granted, you know, as we had kind of alluded to earlier in the program, we were talking about the things that were just turning into practice at the time, right? So early goal-directed therapy, the use of stress-dose steroids, um, hydrocortisone plus flugicortisone, that first initial study was being published during the same time period. Uh, and so many of the things that we sort of take for granted that might potentially improve patient outcomes um, were things that were just at this time being introduced into practice, into the septic shock practice. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a different time, right? When you go to that early goal-directed therapy, right, the the control arm, their mortality rate was like 47%. So not as high as 60, but they didn't, you know, this number didn't come out of thin air, right? They used it from, from data that they had. So no difference between either treatment arm. So would you consider this a more positive trial for the combination therapy of norepinephrine plus dobutamine or like a more positive trial for monotherapy with epinephrine? So I would consider this more positive for um, epinephrine as a single agent. Um, I think it it kind of proved to us that epinephrine could do uh, similarly what two drugs could do in combination. Um, I think one of the things that we also saw um, with this is that when when folks were started on epinephrine, um, we saw some adverse events that were pretty unique to epinephrine. And those adverse events, they came out and they might actually have greater implications now than they did at the time. Um, during the first four days of therapy, the pH was lower Um, So more acidemic in patients that received epinephrine compared to those that received the combination of norepi and dobutamine. Um, And that is largely driven by an an initial increase in lactate in the folks that received epinephrine. Um, Epinephrine is known to release lactate from skeletal muscle. um, And so there is this, you know, 12 to 24 hour period of time where the lactate increases. That certainly would influence your pH, right? And those two things at the time, they didn't change outcomes. But now, fast forward to where we are here, the implications in a lactate-driven resuscitation world um, <laughs> could actually be pretty substantial. And so I think that's one of the huge things that were, was highlighted um, from this particular study. Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up a great point, right? How many times I've been there when you're trying to guide lactates, you've switched to epinephrine, and then the lactate bumped, and you're like... Is it the epi? Are we falling behind now? Right. So then you just just start to kind of question everything. So that's a really good, but that's how I took it as well as I think when I was going into this study, it was like, 
um, you're looking for a lot of those adverse effects and you did, it wasn't as evident in this study. And so I kind of took that as a more positive epinephrine study as well. So definitely same page there. So where are we now? Now let's go. We talked a little bit about this. So as we go through this study again, let the listeners know what, what stood out as weird in 2023 that wasn't weird when patients were being enrolled from 1999 to 2004. We, we, have, we have tons of selections. You can choose one. out. You can even break rules and do two because we'll have honorable mentions here. There's some really good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, one of the um, things that stands out to me the most is the use of Zygris. Um, I was a, you know, coming out of pharmacy school, understanding, you know, Eli Lilly, looking at their website to get the <laughs> slides to understand. I still use those slides to teach you know, how the inflammatory and procoagulable and fibrinolytic pathways are connected in sepsis, right? And patients were, were using that medication during the study. And, and most, most people are like, what, what is Zygris, right? Activated yeah. protein C, right? So targeting the DIC component of septic shock. So um, almost 20% of patients received it, right? That's a, a huge portion. Um, you know, we there was some really promising early data with that. And then it kind of fills it out when, when looking across the entire spectrum of uh, of septic shock. And so we don't see it any longer, but it was uh, something that was, it's straight up weird. It's different. We don't do that now uh, in 2023. Oh yeah. I mean, did you have, did you have like a, like a, like uh, I know a lot of programs with, with Zygris activated protein C, there was literally like a, when you were on call, you had to assess the appropriateness for Zygris and whether they could or could not get it and dose it and do all those things. I, Scott, I think, you, I think you made some of your colleagues shudder by even just saying that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going back to tra- check. You have to check their Apache score on admission, make sure that it's high enough for qualification. Oh, yeah, I, I remember those days. Absolutely. Um, the so um, the thing that stood out to me, and if you're if you're a fluid steward, probably cover your ears here. So when when you look at the algorithm and when they talk about, you know, figuring out how like their protocol for when to add pressors, when to increase in things, their fluid challenge was 15 to 20 mils per kilo of fluid. So we're just going to casually give them two liters of a fluid challenge before we decide to maybe go up on our vasopressors or not. So a much, much different time um, from, from what we're, what we're doing now. Um, Any honorable mentions that you, that you want to shout out? Uh, I mean, I, you know, their treatment algorithm was based off of a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. Um, for, for those that uh, haven't seen a bedside swan gans or pulmonary artery catheter, right? Uh, those, those values were things that we would trend over time. They made everyone in the ICU feel wonderful because we knew exactly what our agents were doing. And of course, it didn't change outcomes and ended up leading to increased risk of infection by having another line in there. So, um, you know, that would be an honorable mention to me. It just it's more nostalgic for anything because I, I used to love writing those numbers down on paper, <laughs> my monitoring yep, yep. sheets day to day or hour by hour watching those things trend over time. Oh, yeah, that's the that's how right, tell me you're you're involved in in cardiac or cardiology without telling me right your love for for swan gains and those invasive numbers 100 percent. So I hate the fact that 20 percent of these patients were on dopamine Um that's tough. And adequate initial antibiotics, only about 75% um, in an era with 
much, much less resistant. So, you know, it's just fun to do those things. Obviously, we're not criticizing the authors or things, just more when you look back at things that, you know, for disease states like this, it's just kind of fun to, to see what we were doing then. So um, let's Nick, get reeled back in. All right. So, Scott, how do you apply the findings from the CAT study when you've mentioned literally so much of our sepsis management has changed, right? We don't do type glucose control. We try to do fluid stewardship. We're not using dopamine. There's no Zygris, et cetera. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, you know, we have, we have very clear um, guidance in our surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, right? We start with norepinephrine. We is recommended to add on vasopressin. You can debate on when to do that. I think there's enough debate out there about that. And then you get into the consideration of epinephrine. And I think um, based off of, you know, information from this study, you know, we can expect in our septic patients to see a transient increase in our lactate if we go down the route of using epi. Um, that's probably going to influence our pH. And what we, when we're doing that, when we're using epi, we have to hold back the resi- the um, instinct to broaden antibiotics when the lactate goes up, yep. give another two liters of fluid, right? Change our, our vasopressors or change our background of antibiotic therapy, et cetera. So I think we just, you know, for me, it's an understanding. It, it, it adds to the understanding of what epinephrine potentially could do. Um, on the converse, right, if we do have a patient um, that is starting to develop some sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy because we know that that happens over time, um, maybe they need a little extra squeeze. And so maybe, you know, an early transition over to epinephrine and might be good instead of adding on another agent uh, like dobutamine. So I think it, 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 again, kind of just gives a little bit of confidence that we can achieve those chronotropic, inotropic goals with a single agent, uh, potentially instead of adding on another agent um, instead. So let's kind of come full circle here. Um, We talked about what the um, surviving sepsis campaign guideline recommended for hemodynamic management at the time of this trial. So what, taking into account like the results of this trial and some of the other things that we found, what do our guidelines recommend now as it relates to kind of um, this specific question of kind of inotropy and hemodynamic management? Yeah, so the guidelines uh, at this point really suggest, you know, adequate fluid resuscitation, starting our vasopressors, um, primarily focusing on that vasoconstrictive potential. And then if a patient remains um, uh, showing or demonstrating signs of a lack of perfusion, despite having a mean arterial pressure that should be at goal, that's when we start to get into consideration of using an inotropic agent. Now, um, one of the things that's been wonderful over the past five years to see is sort of the advent and extensive implementation of things like point-of-care ultrasound, right? So we can actually see if that heart needs some squeeze, right? We are getting more comfortable with using central venous oxygen saturation as a surrogate for cardiac output. uh, And so we can trend that over time. Uh, So I think we still have the ability to um, detect some of these things, but that's sort of where we're at with the guidelines is to put it on the radar. If we have resuscitated our patients with fluids, we have given them their vasopressors. They're still showing signs of hypoperfusion despite um, having what we would consider an adequate mean arterial pressure. This was fun, Scott. Thanks for, thanks for coming on and, and taking a trip back through a uh, landmark study that um, is uh, an oldie but a goodie. Um, now, we'd be remiss not to say, just a quick reminder for everybody, um, the Chicagoland Critical Care Conference, right, C4, Saturday, August 26th. If you're in the Midwest, right, 
by the way, if you're in the Midwest and you can drive, if it's less than 12 hours, you're going to drive it. So come in person, but if not, right, virtual options, $75. This is like a steal. I feel like I'm stealing from you guys with that cost. So um, hope everybody is able to make it. Hope I'm able to see everybody there. Scott, thanks again so much. Um, I appreciate all you've done and coming on. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate uh, talking about the conference and it's great to go down memory lane with one of these older studies. I appreciate that. Another big thank you to Scott Bankin for coming back on the pod. Remember, C4 Conference registration ends Monday, August 21st. And please let me know what you think. Right, This is only the second Trial of the Week episode, so always, as always, but definitely appreciate your thoughts and feedback with new initiatives and things. So reach out at pharmacy to dose uh, or pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Uh, the reference list with the articles we discussed as well as that C4 registration link is in the podcast episode description as well as at pharmacytodose.com, the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. Podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.